All right, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 5. This text is going to be really important for some of you. Uh, it isn't teaching us how to handle rejection from others, but Paul is handling rejection. And you know as well as I do that there is nothing that messes you up more than rejection. Right? You do not like people who criticize you, even if they're right. Our world is now built on flattery. The only unforgivable sin in our day is to uh, correct somebody, especially if you're a woman or a minority. And so Paul is going to really help us by showing us how to handle people who malign you and lie about you and criticize you and reject you. And so you likely give too much credence to what others think or say about you. The peace that God has given you in Christ is often disturbed because you fret and worry and even sometimes are consumed with fear over what others think about you. You live in the unbelief often as if what God has said about you in Christ is a very little thing and what others say about you is very great. And Paul is going to show us by his example of how a Christian should handle the criticism and rejection of others. And so let's pray for this because this will be hard, I think. It's a hard thing and we need help here. So let's ask God for help. So Father, we ask you for help now that your word would do its hard work in our lives, that you would not at all hold back, that it would be a double-edged sword plunging to the very depths of, of us cutting out that which is grievous and unbelieving in us and restoring us. And so, God, please do your work. Give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read these verses. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that stewards, or required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The context here again is church. Paul planted this church. He pastored it for a year and a half. And now four, five, six years later, he's writing this letter in response to what he's heard uh, of them, of their conflict and division and rejection of his ministry. So Paul's verses here aren't mainly about how to handle criticism or how to deal with rejection as a, as, a, uh, as a person. They're about pastoral ministry. So Paul is going to give us the definition of a pastor in verse 1. He's going to give us the definition of pastoral success in verse 2. And then he's going to remind us of whose judgment really matters in verses 3 to 5. But through all this, 
Paul gives us a great example of how to live not fearing man, but fearing God. How about not to be paralyzed by what others think, by rejection of others, but giving ourselves uh, to God. Now, this rejection uh, or this criticism that Paul's receiving from those that he pastored and loved and gave himself for is wrong. Their evaluation of Paul's pastoring, of Paul's person is wrong. They're wrong. Their judgment is incorrect. It's uh, unjust. It's unfair. So when I'm talking about the rejection or criticism of others, we have to evaluate right criticism and wrong criticism. But either way, we need to know how to handle it. And so Paul's going to help us there. But we want to do justice to the context. The context is here. He's mainly talking about pastors. He's talking about me, elders maybe. And so we want to talk about that, but through it, I hope that God gives you grace in learning how to deal with criticism. Because in our age, the way to deal with criticism, there's a ditch on each side. One is to crawl up in the fetal position and throw the self-pity thing. Woe is me. Don't they know how good I am? And then you try to surround yourself with people who will prop up your fragile ego who will only pat you on the back and tell you how good and lovely and, and how bad those bad people are. And they lie to you. They flatter you. Our world is one built on flattery. On the other side uh, is this, just the anger that can come with criticism, uh, the, the bitterness, the just blowing up in unrighteous anger. And Paul provides us the Christian way. But first he begins with his definition of a pastor. This is how one should regard us, pastors, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So one reason that the church in Corinth was unjustly criticizing Paul is they forgot what a pastor is. One reason that this church is dividing up under the names of various pastors and teachers because they've forgotten the biblical teaching of who pastors are. So Paul helps them again by reminding them and us of what a pastor is. So Paul wants to teach you how to think about pastors. Look at the first phrase. This is how one should regard us. Paul is saying, here's how to think about a pastor. Got that, right? This is how you should regard us. He's telling you how to think. A pastor is telling you how to think about the pastor. And so here I am, a pastor, telling you how to think about me. This is fun. I enjoy this kind of thing. I want to get inside of your head and and teach you how to think about me. Uh, It's there in the text, whatever. Um, So he, he says two things. Regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. That term servants there is the typical word Use the servant. It's not doulos. It's not slave here. This word uh, is um, a compound of two different words that mean under rower. So you're thinking here of men in a big ship rowing. You, you know, in those huge kind of slave vessels where you got rows of people, of men, rowing. And, and you have under rowers who are under the direction and authority of an over rower. So Paul is saying... You should regard me as an under rower. I am under the authority of another. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. Pastors labor under the direct authority 
of God's word, therefore under Christ. So this is both a statement of submission of the pastor and of the authority of the pastor. And a pastor is to submit himself to Christ, mediated through God's word. He cannot go any further than God's word go. And he, and he is required to go as far as God's word goes. Right? So pastors can fail on both ends. We can become legalists who require more than what God's word requires. Can't do that. Or we can become permissive and not require what God's words require. In our age, it's the latter temptation. In our age, the temptation is not to go beyond God's word, but to fall short of it. And we're not allowed to do that. We are under authority to yield this. Paul says in Acts 20 that he is uh, innocent of the blood of all men because he did not shrink back from declaring the entire counsel of God's word. So the temptation of pastors is to shrink back from uh, teaching everything that God has commanded in His Word. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That's the, the authority the pastor is under. And then, Paul is not only stating whose authority he's under, he's stating whose authority you're under. God has given the pastor of your local church, whatever church you're a part of, authority over you, provided the pastor is submitting to God. And so Paul is helping the Corinthians rightly think about the pastor again. He's under God's authority and you're under his authority. A pastor must not ever yield to the unbiblical desires of his congregation, but must always submit himself to Christ. And the members of the church are to submit themselves to the pastor so long as he is submitting to Christ. Paul even says, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? Follow the pastor and elders so long as they're following Christ. Now, you are to uh, rebel against me if I am rebelling against Christ. Right? Wives, you're under the authority of your husband so long as they're submitting to Christ. If they are leading you in a direction that is contrary to God's word, you are to kick against him because you have a Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. And and so here we meet this reality in Scripture again of submission and authority within equality. God the Father and God the Son, as we sung in the opening song, are eternally equal. And yet the Son has submitted himself to the authority of the Father. As you know, you and I, before God, are completely equal. We're each created in God's image. We each, we each completely need the redemption that's alone through Christ. And yet within this equality, God in His infinite, mysterious humor has set me as an authority in your lives. Same way with husbands and wives. Same way with parents and children. Same way with civil authority and citizens. We have this mystery of equality within submission. And so Paul calls pastors, servants of Christ, and then stewards of the mysteries of God. The term for steward is used of managers of a household. Uh, If you think back to Joseph at the end of Genesis, Joseph was placed as a steward over Potiphar's household. Potiphar was the owner of the household, but he gave authority uh, to Joseph to 
handle all of the details of it, and, he, and Joseph was to give an account for the manager of his household to the owner. This is what pastors are. You are God's household. You are His. And God has given pastors a stewardship. And this stewardship is named over the mysteries of God. What does that phrase, mysteries of God, mean? Well, throughout the New Testament, that phrase, mysteries of God, is used mostly to refer to the gospel. In fact, it's used in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, proclaiming the testimony of the mysteries of God in verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. That's the same word, mystery, there. It's just simply referring to Christ and Him crucified. So the mystery of God is the gospel. Now, this term mystery doesn't mean it's still a mystery. It means at one time it was hidden, but now it's been disclosed. Why? How has it been disclosed? Well, Christ actually came to earth. He came publicly. Christianity is not a mystery cult. It's a public religion. It is Everywhere for everyone to be seen. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say that Christ was crucified and raised and he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. This wasn't done in a closet. This was done in the plain sight of all men. So this mystery has now gone public. And pastors, under the apostolic revelation, are stewards of this. We are called to be faithful to the gospel is found in the Word of God, and we will have to give an account to God for that. So our job, again, is not to add to this gospel, is not to subtract to it. We are to preach God's Word plainly, just straight up. Another way to say this is we are to preach things that are 2,000 years old and not try to, to, to make them better or to leave any of it out. We just preach ancient things. So this should set an expectation for you. You should expect the pastor, at whatever local church you're at, just to preach God's Word. That's it. You should expect plain truth from Scripture and not to be compromised in any way. So again, the besetting sin of pastors in our age isn't likely to add to the truth, although we do that but often to skip or treat lightly the things that the pastor knows will stir up trouble. Uh, it used to be, this is still true, but it's, it's not, this phrase isn't used anymore, that pastors were called the third sex. You have men and you have women, and pastors are somehow in the muddy middle. Right? Because we don't want to offend anybody. We always want to be pleasing to everybody. We... We don't want to say things that offend anyone. Pastors can be very soft. I said this last week, and we need to get this one right. There are men and women who do damage by doing heinous, aggressive things. But most of the damage being done in our age are done by people who shrink back from doing what they should be doing. Passivity. Right? And let's say a husband who doesn't do his duties as a man to his wife to protect and provide and lead, but is just passive. Those men in our age are often referred to as nice men. 
his wife is pulling out her hair, but everybody looks at her and goes, you're married to a good guy. He's not, he's not making a mess. He's a nice man. And in our age, nice men are killing us. In our age, nice pastors are killing the church. Right? The church is in turmoil, but everybody looks at the pastor and looks at him and well, he's a good guy. Why is it going so badly? Because he won't preach anything hard. Because he won't deal with people. And it caused all kinds of confusion, but nobody put their finger on it because he's a good guy. He's so nice. Because soft preaching makes hard people. Hard preaching makes soft people. If you want a church filled with people who are hurting other people, you'll always find a soft pastor there because he's always trying to make everybody happy. And so Paul reminds us again of who we are as pastors. And then in verse 2, he defines what a successful pastor is. It's just faithful. Faithful to what? It is required of stewards, picking up in the word in verse 1, that they be found faithful. So he's, he's to be faithful to the stewardship of preaching God's word. Again, in our day, we have redefined pastoral success not in relationship to how a pastor is rightly handling the word of truth, as Paul writes in the letter to Timothy, but how, uh, but, but really in two ways. We define pastoral success numerically, and then we define pastoral success based on the lack of conflict. That is, a pastor is succeeding so far as the numbers in church are growing and the budget is healthy, and whether or not everybody likes him. Seminaries are graduating pastors with the definition that success means you will not endure any conflict. And if you endure conflict, you must be failing. This is the functional definition I came out of seminary with. And it's like, you read the New Testament, and every letter is written because of pastoral conflict. Jesus Christ's ministry ramped up in conflict the longer he did it, and his crowd shrank the longer he did it. Past churches today would never hire the Apostle Paul. Because everywhere he went, he stirred up trouble. He was the greatest troublemaker in the history of Christianity. Most of the churches he pastored hated him, rejected him. Paul writes at the very end of his life that everyone has abandoned me. <laughs> and, and he would send his resume to a church, right? Rejection and physical suffering for the gospel and all kind of doctrinal problems. And you, he, he wouldn't even make the first cut. And it shows just how we have become to redefine successful pastoring in our day. Numerical growth, everybody happy. Not so. Now, I am not at all saying the pastor should have a license to be a jerk. It's not true. We are to do our duty with all kinds of patience 
and kindness. But our job as pastors would be faithful to the stewardship that God has given us, not faithful to the whims and wishes of the people. That is our call. And as you can see throughout all of Scripture, whether it's the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, when they are faithful to God's Word, conflict is inevitable. Inevitable. The prophets and the apostles made all of the right people angry. That Paul was being maligned by these Corinthians doesn't prove the unfaithfulness of his ministry, it proves the faithfulness of his ministry. He was making the right people angry there. So this is what I want for you guys. I assume you uh, Fort folks are from all kinds of different churches all over the place, right? And so you're going to go back to whatever local church or in the future you'll move and attend a local church. And I want to urge you, do not ever settle for a pastor who will not say hard things. Don't ever settle. If you're in a church more than a month and you're not offended, he's probably doing something wrong. Right? Truly. If you're in a church that will not teach towards the hard things in our culture and, and teach towards them courageously, those kind of guys get asked to speak at the big conferences. Numerical success, that is not the definition of pastoral ministry. Find a small country church filled with hardworking, blue-collarish kind of people that's the kind of church you want to be in. Because they just have this ability to be inoculated against the, the beautiful, cool kid sort of stuff. That's why I love Pine Grove. Honestly, that's why I love this church. You just will not play. <laughs> you, just, you don't care about the pressure the world. It's just awesome here. I love it because of that. So Paul is suffering... Rejection because of his faithful ministry. In verses 3 to 5, we see this judgment that the Corinthian church has brought against him, though he was faithful. And we've seen in the first three chapters of this letter that they are unjustly, unbiblically criticizing Paul. In chapter 2, new teachers have come to the Corinthian church with lofty speech and wisdom in verse 1, and Paul, by comparison, seems to be a backwoods, hickish, know-nothing pastor. And he's being criticized for his plainness of speech. He's being criticized because he just seems to preach the same thing over. Christ had him crucified. He doesn't get deep. And so they're criticizing him for his faithfulness. They've rejected him. In fact, some in the church are lining up against him underneath other pastors. And so he is facing the thing that we as humans hate more than anything else, rejection. And rejection by the people that he gave himself for. That's the worst, isn't it? You ever done good things for people only to have them reject you? That's what Paul is facing here. And in pastoral ministry, I can just tell you, it's a bit like mothering. <laughs> or parenting, at least. Pastors care about their people. They care about their lives. 
They should be giving themselves, spending themselves to the people. And then when you're rejected by those people, that just tears your guts out. Maybe you as a parent have faced that with your own children. And so this is Paul is facing. And Paul shows here how a Christian, how a pastor, how a Christian should handle this. Just to get a few things straight here. The word judge or judgment is used in these three verses frequently. It's a very small thing. If I'm judged by you, I don't judge myself. The Lord judges me. Do not pronounce judgment. Now again in our day, uh, being judgmental is a, is a, is a very bad thing. Right? I, we were at the Woodchucks game and there was a, an advertisement for a, I don't know if it's a ministry, but some kind of group in Wausau that meets people where they're at without any judgment. That's baloney. You and I are wired to constantly evaluate and judge everybody and everything. You can't help it. You have to make judgments. You have to figure out who is safe and who isn't safe. You have to figure out what's going on. So Paul is not here condemning all judgments. It's just wrong judgments. What he's actually condemning is the idolatrous flipping of putting way more weight on what people think than what God thinks. That's, that's what's going on here. He's going to show you how to how to keep what people judge and say and think in its proper perspective in relation to God's judgment. And then he throws this crazy twist at the end of chapter 5. That word commendation is utterly unexpected there. And so Paul is not condemning judgment. You, you guys have to judge. We as pastors and elders have to judge you. We have to make evaluations on your behavior, on your intent even. That's part and parcel of this world. You have to do this. But we have to train ourselves to do it biblically. To do it carefully. In fact, what we have to do is first judge ourselves, right? You have to evaluate the plank in your own eye before you start looking at the specks in others. Jesus doesn't say, don't make any judgments, but make right judgments. Make just judgments. And it's you who are like teenage 20-somethings that are most in danger of the foolishness of our world of saying, don't judge anybody everywhere. Let's talk about this in regards to homosexuality. You can tell on the street when somebody's gay. It's as clear. We were in San Antonio vacation with the family, and there was a man walking down the street who was as gay as gay could be. And one of my kids said, Daddy, that guy's gay. It's so clear externals reveal internals. And, and we as people have to do that. Why? Because we care about them. Because we want to figure out how to serve them. Because we have to evaluate ourselves and figure out how, what help we need. This is part and parcel of humanity. It's part and parcel of pastoring. It's part and parcel of husbanding. It's part and parcel of parenting. It's part and parcel of doing anything in this world. If you care about people, you're going to have to make judgments. You have to. You have to do it to protect. 
pastors and elders to protect the flock. And if to do so, we're going to have to make judgments. Fathers to protect your children. To do that, you're going to have to make judgments about your, your, the friends of your children. So please do not give in to the lie that we are not to make judgments. We're to make right judgments. We're to make patient judgments, not hasty ones. The Corinthian church is making hasty judgments. Not based on facts, but based on their own fallen nature. So Paul's not critiquing judgment, he's critiquing wrong judgment. He's even more critiquing, as I said before, the elevation of what people think over what God thinks. In verse 3, this is what he says. He doesn't say it's only a small thing, but it's a very small thing. He's putting the judgments of people in its proper sphere. As a pastor, it is a very small thing, your judgment of me. It's not just a small thing. It's a very small thing. This is the thing that pastors deal with, not infrequently, is so many times the members of the church that we love dearly want their critique and their evaluation to, to cause us to like change everything. And then you get bent out of shape when you don't meet that kind of... Um, Acceptance of your judgment? Jeff is smiling right now. Because right? we get emails or phone calls or visits, and somebody's worked up, and, you know, they don't always get what they want. And, and I, this, I hope that this word is helpful for you. What your judgment of Christian pastors or ministries is a very small thing. Isn't that humbling? You should want me to take your critiques and evaluation and judge me as a very small thing in relationship to God's judgment. You should not want me to put too much weight into what you think or feel or want. Now, it doesn't say it's nothing. We want your feedback. We need your criticism when it's right. We need your just judgments. We need you to take time and patiently evaluate biblically. It was a very small thing. Paul says, a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other human. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, here, here's something fun. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. And then in verse 4, he judged himself. You see that? That's what I love about the Bible. I do not even judge myself, but I'm not aware of anything about, against myself. <laughs> and he's judging himself. What does he mean, I do not judge myself? He means that he realizes he is not the final perfect evaluator of his own ministry. God is. Everything in this, these three verses is in, set in contrast to God's right, just, perfect judgment at the end of time. In, in contrast to God's perfect, just judgment when he comes again, what you think about the pastor is a very small thing. What the pastor thinks about the pastor is a very small thing. You should wait until the end to see if you're right. Don't think you're so right. And the pastor shouldn't think he's so right. Because God is alone the perfect judge. He always gets it right. That tells you a lot about God, isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? God is perfect. He never makes a mistake in his judgment. Ever. He'll never have to come back to somebody and say, I got that one wrong. 
You as a parent have to do that all the time, don't you? You come in and there's two of your kids fighting and you get it wrong. God will never do that. Ever. That should cause you to worship Him. Who is there that you know who can do that? He knows all things. He sees all things. He will judge it perfectly. Isn't that wonderful? You can trust Him in this. You can't trust judges in our day. They get it wrong all the time. All the time. Right? You hear judgments of criminals and one guy gets off with probation and the other guy gets eight years for the same thing. Our judgment is so imperfect, whether it's of others or ourselves, but not God. And that's it. Verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Now again, he's talking about pastoral ministry. Therefore, here, here's the conclusion, verse 5. Therefore, here's what he wants you to learn. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, will disclose the purpose of the heart, and here's the big twist then each one will receive his commendation from God. That last line is totally opposite of what I expect it to be. How many times do you equate God's judgment with commendation? How many times do you equate God evaluating everything that nobody else sees and praise? This should be very convicting to you, to me. It was to me. Because we are so harsh in our evaluation of God. We think Him cruel, mean. We don't see Him as the joyous, glad Father who loves to commend. You might remember at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Father is present there. And this is my beloved son in whom I'm okay with. Right, that's what he says, right? Now, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Paul at the, I mean, and then Jesus later on says, the one thing that we want to hear before the Father in heaven is, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what God says. Paul says at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. There lies now before me only a crown of reward. <laughs> I can tell you, every pastor looks back over the ministry and looks at it. Wow, I suck. <laughs> Kids, your mom probably tells you not to use that word. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I didn't do it well. Right? Parents do this. Husbands do this. Wives do this. You evaluate yourself so harshly. And you know why? Because that's what you think God is like. Your harsh critique and evaluation of others and yourself is just a reflection of how you think God evaluates you. Now, it could be because that's what your dad is like. He found it really difficult to hear any kind of commendation or praise from your dad. Fathers, this is Father Training 101. Commend your children. You should be so easily pleased, but never easily satisfied. You want your children to grow and get better, but you're so excited when they're three and they draw you the picture that you can't make heads or tails of, but you don't want them to keep drawing like a three-year-old. So you're just easily tickled pink, but you always want them to grow. That's what God the Father is like. He is so easily satisfied. 
He's not constantly in heaven going. <laughs> Pathetic. That's what God's like. That's what God is like. So, I said earlier that we have lots of people in our church suffering. There's nobody more critical of themselves than those who are in suffering. Because you can't do anything right when you're in trouble, when you're in sorrow. You, you weep and you condemn yourself for weeping. You don't want to get out of bed and you condemn yourself for not wanting to get out of bed. You wrongly elevate others who are suffering that you don't see weeping, you don't see struggling because they come to church and put on a happy face and you think, I wish I were more like them. So how do you handle criticism and critique and rejection of others? It should be a very small thing. It should be a very small thing in your life. I was at a preaching workshop a number of years ago, and um, the guy leading the workshop was talking about preaching and how afterwards, uh, this is true of, of every pastor that I know, pastors often go, that was probably one of the worst sermons ever. Because of that, I always go to my wife, she says sometimes, how, how do you think I said that was probably the best sermon I've ever preached? Because it's the opposite. And so I asked him, what do you do with that? What do you do Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, when your heart is like, oh, I wish I would have said this different. I wish I would have said I wish I wouldn't have said the word suck. And, uh, right, right. and he said, I have chapter 4, verse 3 emblazoned on my mind. My evaluation of me, others' evaluation of me is a very small thing. It's, it's almost nothing. That, that's the help for you. At work, when others think of your work, it's a very small thing. Now, again, we need to accept right criticism. If you're a lazy employee, the criticism you are receiving is just. You are suffering for being a fool. It's, it's only more foolish to go, well, that's a very small thing. No, you're going to lose your job and be hungry. wives this is really helpful for you the people in our church that are our world is teaching should be the untouchables are women in marriages wives are free to correct their husbands husbands are not allowed to correct their wives you know that's true in your marriage don't you that's true you can critique your husband up one side and down all the other, but if he critiques you, oh, you need to accept it. It's a very small thing. But God has given you your husband in Ephesians 5 to wash you with the water of the word, to sanctify you. You guys from Fort, I say stuff like this all the time, and hopefully it's because I love you. Because we should be able to accept criticism because it's a very small thing. It shouldn't ruin us. It shouldn't make you lie awake at night. You should be free from slavery to what other people think. Because in light of God and His judgment of you in Christ, it's nothing almost. It is nothing. What has God said about you in Christ? 
What has he declared about you? You are 100% just with the righteousness of Christ. Who cares what other people think about you? If that's the dominant reality in your life, the righteousness that God has given you, then you can accept criticism as it is. It shouldn't control you. It shouldn't put you into a fetal position. It shouldn't get you crazy angry. You should be able to look at it and say, what can I learn from this? And you move on. That's it. In my job, in my marriage, at my home, everything. What can I learn from this criticism? And that's it. You give it about a minute. Because it's a very small thing. It's a very small thing. This summer, you're probably going to get together with family, 4th of July. <laughs> right? and with your siblings, there's all kinds of criticism and ongoing warfare. Who cares what they think? It's a very small thing. In your suffering, brothers and sisters, you are the least qualified when you're suffering to evaluate yourself. It's a very small thing. Because at the end, each will receive his commendation. Isn't that crazy? From God. Each will receive his commendation from God. Can you get that through your head and heart? Each will receive his commendation. His commendation. That should free you to work all the harder. The, the end time commendation of God should free you to work all the harder. Because you can't wait to receive your commendation from the Lord. All right, if I could have the elders come on up. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So uh, we... Practice a completely open communion here. If you're a believer, you trust that Christ died and rose again for your sins, but you're part of another church, you're more than welcome to take part of it with us. If you're not a believer, you are not yet welcome to this table. And I want to urge you to consider the joy and benefit of being a Christian that you might turn from your sin and trust in Christ. This meal is, uh, by God's grace, given to you to feed you spiritually. I want to relate this to stress. I talk about stress in the confession time. I want to talk about it again. When you work physically, your muscles are stressed. You're taxed. And then they need to be fed and they need to be rested. In the same way, when you suffer, there is often a heaping help of, or there's a burden of stress that taxes you spiritually. Suffering, just life in general, can add a quite a bit of additional stress and burden. And as I said in the time of confession, there is good stress and there's bad stress. The good stress is the kind that leads to rest. The bad stress is the kind that will never let you rest because you're so full of anxiety and worry. Hopefully you've already confessed that at the beginning, so I'm not going to go into that here. What I want to say is, part of this Lord's Supper and the Sabbath is to call those of you who have stressed yourself for six days to come and sit down and plop down and sit back and let the Lord feed you. That's what this is for. We work Monday to Saturday hard so we can come on Sunday and rest. So we can come on Sunday, have the Lord 
put up the tables, put the seats around it, make all the food, seat you, fill your plate, and then enjoy watching you enjoy His presence. That's what the God is doing here. He is welcoming you to His table for those of you who have stressed, <laughs> who've worked hard, and who look forward to this break. Who look forward to the Lord God in heaven feeding you. To many as Christians, we get this opposite. We have to do for the Lord. We have to do for the Lord. We have to do for the Lord. That's, that's right. It's all right. But here, God at this table is doing for you. You're passive here. He sent his son to die. He raised him from the dead. He has sent his spirit among us. And now he wants through this very simple thing to nourish you. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way. God is here serving you. Another way to say it is, the only people who... um, Take this rightly. God wants to welcome stressed out people here. Being stressed out doesn't uh, keep you from it. It qualifies you for it. Can I say that? If you need a rest, here it is. If you need nourishment, here it is. Kick off your shoes. Sit down. God is welcoming you to Himself. He wants to nourish and strengthen you so that when you wake up tomorrow, you can give it another week. That's what He wants to do. So come, dear ones, welcome to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, praise You for Your Son. Pray that we would take this in a manner worthy of You, which means simply by faith, knowing that You are here, You care for us, and You desire to nourish us. And so please do it. God, we need You. We can't do this coming week without Your grace. And so God, please nourish us by Your grace on Your Son through Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the charge is this. I want you to resolve to care much less for what people think of you. I, I want you to learn to think of what you think about yourself, what others think of you is a very little thing. That you can live much more freely and joyously and faithfully before God. I want it to become a very little thing for you. Why don't you stand for the benediction? May our great God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that Jesus Christ died and rose and ascended and reigns and will return. So that by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, you may abound in the coming hours and days and circumstances in the hope of knowing that God is your Father. Amen.